All right. So how's it going, everybody? Uh, this is going to be episode number three of the Conscious Bodybuilding Podcast. Uh, today, I have Dr. Mike Isertel on. He is a uh, he ha does have a PhD in sports physiology. He is the uh, lead researcher at uh, and co-founder of Renaissance Periodization, and he's also a practicing bodybuilder himself. Does that sound about right? Yeah, it's not terribly off. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Um, so the reason I'm having Mike on today is um, I I look up to him in a lot of ways, and um, I really believe that bodybuilding. Um, needs to start to embrace the more evidence-based approach more often. Um, I believe that there's still a lot of anecdotes circulating. I feel like there's a lot of outdated practices that are uh, still being pushed by um, some of the top level athletes and coaches in bodybuilding, especially IFBB professional bodybuilding. And I kind of want to create a dialogue um, around evidence-based bodybuilding and uh, maybe why some of that stuff isn't the most optimal way to be uh, going about things. Um, so my first question that I have, uh, for you, Dr. Mike is, um, what would you say to enhanced bodybuilders or maybe not even enhanced, but, uh, people who say that the evidence doesn't apply to them? Um, I think that is more specifically to enhance people, but, um, what do you have to say to that? Yeah. So enhancing with pharmaceuticals definitely changes some things, but it doesn't change them in a completely qualitative manner where it's just up, up becomes down, <laughs> left becomes right. Uh, it usually changes them in magnitudes, like uh, naturals can train a certain amount and recover. Enhanced people, given the identical conditions with enhancement, can train more and recover. It's not like twice as much or 10 times as much or a 10th as much. It's like, you know, 33% more or 50% more, 166% more nothing crazy. So all the principles still apply and fundamentally muscle grows in very, very similar ways between naturals and enhanced. It's just enhanced are enhanced so they can both get away with more and be more specific in particular and get more out of those specifics and particularities. So they just, oh, it's advantaged. And I would say that the, the, probably the best analogy to make on enhanced versus not enhanced is good genetics versus bad genetics. Like if you have Good genetics, it's really stupid to tell people you don't need the evidence because you might not need the evidence yet. Then you get into a competition where you are uh, competing against other people with very good genetics and you take fourth. You may never used to that sort of thing and now all of a sudden how the world works might be interesting to you and you start reading science that applies to people with not so great genetics and think, well, let's see which, what, of, what of this applies to me. And because human bodies with good genetics or not work fundamentally the same way, drugs or not, they work fundamentally the same way. A lot of the evidence, especially the basic stuff, um, that's very sort of deeply theoretical applies to everyone. It just how it applies is a little bit different, but that's where the art and science kind of blend. And that's what coaches are for, but you can yeah. still be enhanced and be super evidence-based and where there is no evidence, you have to do your own thing, but you can still do it on physiological rationale. Uh, yeah. You don't just throw out everything. And, and as by the way, you know, the, the people that win everything in bodybuilding, almost all of them have coaches and those coaches are very evidence-based. They read pharmaceutical literature like crazy. Yeah. Uh, they read nutritional literature like crazy. They know a ton of stuff. Try peaking for an enhanced show and using diuretics without having an evidence-based background on what Lasix and, and all that stuff does. Like, it's yeah. going to be really bad. So uh, a lot of times, 
been the enhanced community hasn't caught up to scientific training quite yet, but they've been very, very scientific about their supplement use and very scientific uh, recently, especially about their dieting. And the scientific training is just coming. And if you're enhanced and you think science is dumb or bullshit with regards to training, you're going to be holding like, uh, you know, you're going to be holding the hot potato when everyone in the enhanced world is already training scientifically in 10 or 15 years and you're the last idiot saying dumb shit. Um, <laughs> really, like, you know, because like, yeah. it's, it's funny, right? Imagine saying something about drugs, you know, like imagine being in the seventies and saying like, you know, like, well, just take a shitload of tests and you don't have to worry about like all these specific compounds and this bullshit. And then, you know, Dan Duchesne's book uh, comes out and tells you how to really do things properly and leads to the nineties revolution where everyone gained like 30 pounds of muscle. I'll be like, oh, yeah. maybe evidence-based is a good idea. You know, like that book was, so Dan Duchesne didn't actually bodybuild himself. <laughs> like he just read studies. That's all he did. And he managed to put together the knowledge that other coaches like um, Chris Aceto and Chad Nichols took and ran with and, and Milo Sarchev and all those guys. And then they produced the biggest athletes of all time. So you don't want to be, you know, holding the shit out of the stick saying evidence is bullshit when it comes around to training and it's, it's getting there uh, slowly. But yeah. No, I, th I think I agree with you. I think I have seen uh, more of that. I think maybe sometimes what gets more more attention is the stuff that isn't as evidence-based. Maybe it does lie in some evidence, but um, I think it's, it's also just the, how people are. They just are drawn to things that may be more of a quick fix or preaching something that might not be, you know, you take the easier way to get to things. So I guess that's maybe what I see sometimes. For sure. There's also a problem in uh, bodybuilding as perceived versus bodybuilding as how it really is on the enhanced side. Because on the enhanced side, the guys sort of kind of do whatever for training and they have a pretty meticulous diet. It's often not very well explained because the diet interaction with peptides, uh, insulin and growth hormone is so you know, extreme in many cases that the only way to justify why the nooks and crannies of the diet are the way they are is from the perspective of peptide use. But people just don't talk about that stuff. In the United Kingdom, it's, it's legal to use. So they talk about it some, but it's still taboo. Most people talk about it. It's not in the main magazines. It's not on the main Instagram pages. Yeah. So you can get this perception that like the way you get jacked is, you know, benching with a partial range of motion. Like, what's that guy's insulin protocol? Be like, well, would just take a lot. Like, no, 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 that's not how insulin works. You don't just take a lot. He's got someone on his side telling him exactly what to take, exactly when, exactly how. He pays that man thousands of dollars every month. Uh, and that's the person that's fueling them, you know, through 30 or 40 pounds of muscle. And because people just never see that, they think, oh, on the enhanced side, it's just not evidence-based. Like, it's evidence-based on the enhancements, but you just never read about that anywhere. Like, if you ever type in, just try, try Google pro cycle, like pro steroid cycle. I just, you get, like, some, like, T Nation article from four years ago that, like, has a sample cycle. And because yeah. it's by, like, a guy named Shadow Pro, <clears throat> you don't even know if it's just pure make-belief, right? Like, some of it looks yeah. reasonable. Some of it looks insane. But you never know. You don't know what anyone's using. You don't know how scientific it is. You know, someone said, like, uh, I don't do science. And then they wanted to win a top national level show, Enhanced. And the coach that they hired, you know, if they said, like, I'm not into science, the coach would be like, oh, that's cool, man. I'll take care of that part for you. Here's what you take in exactly the quantities. Like, that's science, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's maybe not labeled as such, but it is, yeah. Um, what was I going to say on that? Um, well, I guess, yeah, it is kind of going in that direction. I, I, I think it's, it's really easy for, I, I've been in that realm and I've worked with some of those coaches and I've seen other people saying, oh yeah, you take this much. Um, I don't, I, some of the, the more mainstream guys say preaching large amounts, grams of, of cycles. And then you work with these coaches and you realize that's not really what, what it takes and then what they're actually prescribing. So I agree with you on that. Um, well, so to get into the training side of things, um, I, I think, and I guess this is just my observation, but, um, I believe there's somewhat of this emotional attachment to, um, constantly having to 
I don't want to say beat yourself on the ground, but you have to, to be a good bodybuilder, you have to constantly hurt yourself. And there's somewhat like this emotional attachment to training to failure. I guess that's maybe more specific to certain people. I don't want to name, but, um, why is training to concentric muscular failure for multiple sets, multiple days in a row, maybe not the most ideal, um, for someone who's trying to maximize hypertrophy? Yeah, it's nearly ideal on the stimulus front. So it actually does grow a ton of muscle, maybe the most muscle. Problem is, it's not ideal on a fatigue front. Uh, the ratio of stimulus to fatigue that it provides you is not as great as training a little bit shy of failure on average. So something like two reps shy of failure is probably going to give you the best bang for your buck on average for how much stimulus you get versus how much fatigue. So if you have to train once and grow as much muscle as you can in any one session, then you're almost certainly going to want to train everything to complete concentric failure. The thing is training doesn't occur once it occurs later that week and the week after later that week after and blah, 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 maybe like four weeks in a row. So you're going to want to pick a way of training that not only stimulates you very well now, but doesn't cause an excessive amount of fatigue so that you don't end up paying for it later and just not being able to train as consistently as, as very hard. And the way to do that is probably start a little bit shy of failure, maybe three reps in reserve or something like that. And then slowly make training harder over time until you get close to failure, you get to failure. And then after you get to failure, there's really nowhere to push because you're so fatigued. You're just completely wrecked. Probably time to deload and really let the fatigue go and then sort of re-ramp the process over again. But training a failure is not a bad idea. And there's a notion that training a failure is the best is very understandable because the failure is just about as hard as you can train. You know, going beyond failure is supposed to be even harder. But uh, all the research on it says it's just not required that sets of three reps in reserve or even a little bit more, close, cause identical gains in beginners and intermediates not using drugs. And since drugs make it easier to grow muscle, there's no reason to suspect that people who use drugs have any reason to go close to failure. As a matter of fact, it's so funny about bodybuilding culture. Uh, am, I, am I allowed to swear in here? Swearing? Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Great. So like uh, not riders uh, of physique pros will justify anything they can just to not ride longer. And so when they say like, you know, uh, you're trying to justify failure or whatever you say, Oh, you know, like, uh, you, you need to do failure cause failure training is better if you're on drugs. Like, okay, sweet. So how do you explain the nineties bodybuilders who never went to failure and they're just super jacked? Like, well, that's just the drugs. Like, it's okay. One reason. So the drugs both need failure and benefit from it, but you also get away with drugs and not training. Like, you don't even know what your mind is. Make up your mind. Right, you could say like, well, the guys today trained a failure, but the only reason they get away with that is because of drugs. We're like, no, 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 failure training is great. So, like, if you decide to not ride on failure training, you'll use anything you can to to justify it. To me, the best evidence you can get isn't even in the studies; it's in personal experience. I mean, if you do multiple sets to all-out failure, there's not is something you instantly recognize is not sustainable. I have trained, and most folks probably don't know this about me because this is way before Instagram existed or Facebook existed. I trained for years with multiple sets to failure, every set to failure. And I got pretty good gains, but I was always so much more beat up. And I didn't even deload. I didn't know what a deload was. I mean, if you ever read about deload in Flex Magazine, I sure as hell haven't. Not in 2002, I didn't. So uh, what ended up happening was I figured out how deloading works and I figured out how reps and reserve work. And all of a sudden my training just got like 50 times better. And I was like, holy fuck, I can't believe I was going to failure all the time. Yeah. And it, 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 if I've tried since then, a couple of times I tried to go, again, go to failure. Um, every week and it just it, there's progression falls apart because the fatigue is massive and you just can't make the same gains um, some of my best cycles I've ever had for example like shoulder pressing is when I've started real far from failure like four reps in reserve and just increase the weight a little bit each time and uh, with deloads I could manage like 
<coughs> my, my, my help. I can manage like 16 weeks of progression. I hit the strongest I've ever gotten on overhead press. My delts got fucking enormous. Some of the worst cycles I've had of overhead pressing is when, you know, you get greedy in the first week and you're like, I got to hit 10 and your body's like, you should stop at eight. And you're like, 10 it is. So those are some of the worst because I hit 10. I did a good job, but it was real close to failure. And the next week I couldn't even hit a PR. I was so fatigued from just the minimal number of sets that I was like, fuck, they got to deload now. And then what do I do? So there's a thing about sustainability, shy failure, training close to failure is good training at failure is not sustainable which means it's ideally suited for the end of a training cycle probably not ideally suited for every single uh, cycle that you do and the instant response is like well i actually we can reduce fatigue by training less so if i go to failure but just do one or two sets uh i get the same results as someone going uh shy of failure but they have to do three or four sets what's well, actually not true because they've tested this directly in laboratory people who go shy of failure experience roughly the same gains per set as people that go uh, all the way to failure. So if someone can do four sets, three reps in reserve, and someone can do only like, and that's the same fatigue as two sets all the way to failure, that person who got the four sets uh, done, three reps in reserve, probably grows like one and a half times more muscle in that session uh, and accumulates the exact same amount of fatigue. So if you're gonna pay the fatigue cost, you might as well pay the cost to the biggest benefit. The biggest benefit is usually uh, training just shy of failure, slowly working up to it, not starting at it and going anywhere. Yeah, I've noticed some of the uh, more evidence-based coaches uh, who pr preach more of a progressive overload approach. I think they're going in the right direction, but I think some of them still um, see a deload potentially as just going to failure, but just less often for less sets or whatever. And um, I've heard it's you talk about, yeah, no, most definitely. I mean, I, I don't, I don't necessarily knock. They have, they have a lot of other good things that they do say that I think are effective. Um, but I think one thing that I've, see, I've heard you say before too, is it kind of like extends the amount of time of, I mean, you may be chronically fatigued, but maybe you can get a little more before uh, maybe even like an injury happens. You're, you're just extending the amount of time before you become like uh, a really overreached state maybe if you aren't already there. Um, is that kind of in line with what you're saying? Totally. So like, uh, you know, if you deload by doing less, fewer sets of failure, you actually have to ask yourself what it is you're shooting for. Are you trying to grow muscle? Not a deload? No. One of the reasons that you're probably not trying to grow muscle on deload is because if you think you can, so what is a deload's number one function? To drop fatigue. That's it, to reduce fatigue. If you think you can grow muscle and reduce fatigue at the same time, you had better stop training in any other way and train only like that. Can you imagine discovering a training method that could increase muscle mass while decreasing fatigue? Oh my God. Not only would you be fatigue free, you could come in super fatigued and start growing muscle at a great rate and get even less fatigue from your old program. And then we'd never have to deal with fatigue again. That would be amazing. But that's not true. So almost by unfortunate definition, anything, any training amount or difficulty that grows muscle is going to add fatigue. So then the next thing is, okay, so because we have to reduce fatigue, the training we have to do cannot also grow muscle. It just maybe conserve muscle, right? At best. And the next question is, what kind of training do you need to conserve muscle? And the answer is, you can take a week off and pretty much lose no muscle at all. But you can actually lose less muscle and drop fatigue faster if you take like a very, very easy deload, like way, way reps in reserve, so like, and then just few, very few sets and just go through the motions. Okay, great. What if we train a little harder than that during deload? Like quite a bit harder. Still not hard enough to gain any muscle, but harder. So training at a certain level maintains our muscle and reduces fatigue. And then here, this is how hard we're training if we're gaining muscle, right? What happens between these two? Like if you train here, it's harder than you need to keep all your muscle, but it also adds extra fatigue or so it prevents fatigue from falling as much. 
because you're not to adding fatigue yet, but you're here, any training more difficult than this just prevents the fatigue from falling as quickly. If we train here, right here, fatigue doesn't fall at all. And right here, it becomes, begins to accumulate, right? So any training here is fucking stupid. You wanna train as little as possible to conserve all of your muscle mass and let as much fatigue dissipate as possible. To quote Andy Fry, who's probably one of the preeminent researchers on overreaching and fatigue accumulation, when you hit the brakes, hit them hard. Like, um, it's, it's, it's almost like saying you're going to take a day off of work and you only work like seven hours that day instead of eight. Like, is it really a day off? No. Uh, but, you know, people are addicted to the idea of training hard and really they're addicted. It's, it's, it's a compulsion, I think. Um, you go into the gym, you want to fucking smash it and you'll feel like a piece of shit if you don't smash it. We all have those feelings. Like, why the fuck do you think we all bodybuilders? Because you feel like a piece of shit if we don't. Uh, but, you know, if you want to be as good as your genetics truly allow, you're gonna do things that are intelligent and wise, not things that you feel like doing. Like if I only felt shit like I'd feel like doing, I would probably be in Las Vegas as a sports scientist. Wait a minute, I'm already in one of those, JK. But seriously, like it's, it's, uh, it's one of those things where, yeah, like deloading sucks, right? And the training easy sucks. I had a guy compliment me once on how much weight I was squatting, even though I was deloading. But my first thing I, I wanted to say was like, well, you should have seen me last week when I was doing like 20 more pounds than this for literally like eight more reps. But, uh, you know, sometimes you have to go in the gym and feel a bit ridiculous and that's okay. Yeah. No, I think, uh, I think that, that, that exists in the, in the bodybuilding realm also along with dieting too, is being able to like, I mean, even today I was just trying to have some food that wasn't on my plan and I almost have this like guilt associated with it. Same as if I step into the gym and I'm not going all out, you know, pushing myself till I fall, fall down on the floor. It's almost like I have this guilt that maybe has been instilled in me, or I just believe that that's how things need to be. And it, it's really difficult, uh, especially someone who maybe is really rigid as a bodybuilder to stay, okay, let's take a step back um, so that you can take more steps forward, right? Instead of totally. be, be sidelined by an injury because you weren't able to do so. So totally. I agree with that mentality hundred percent. I, and especially I think this, this quarantine time is kind of forced. I mean, it's forced me to almost do more of a maintenance and um, it's forced me to kind of, I mean, uh, even have the time to do something like this, whereas before I'm like, okay, gym, gym all the time, you know, always going hard hundred percent. And if I'm not, you know, I don't feel necessarily um, the best. So yeah, I agree. Um, yeah. I notice how that, you said that you don't feel the best. The bodybuilding is not for how you feel it's for how you look. So you got to yeah. do things to make you look the best, not feel the best. Can you imagine, uh, we were at Jared, uh, Jared and I were actually on a podcast with John Jewett, who's an IFB pro. And he basically says like, once you're at the Olympia level and he is, he actually took like He's top 10 in the Olympia last yeah. year in the 212. And um, he was like, when you're at this caliber, your number one thought is no, no longer actually of getting as good as you can. It's like tied with don't fuck up and get hurt. Because <laughs> like, yeah. you only have so many Olympias in you, like literally. <laughs> like, most guys have like one, right? Some yeah. people have like as many as 10 that they show up. And um, it's, you got to do it right. So for him, it's like, you know, he's, let's say, in Olympia prep mode. He looks at an exercise and he's like, should I push it to failure slash put a little bit more weight on the bar than maybe I'd be super comfortable with? Uh, you know, for us egotistical gym bros with nothing else to do, like, yeah, of course, bucket, slap the weight on the bar, brother, like, high five your friend or whatever, slap on a stick, usual, usual shit you do in the gym, right? <laughs> um, and then for him, it's like, okay, if I take, if I, if I do leg presses with 515 pounds instead of 500, I may eke out a tiny little bit more muscle growth or muscle preservation to be a little tiny bit bigger on stage. But if I get hurt, I'm fucking myself so hard that I might not even end up on stage or I'll end up on stage in something that's 95% of my best, which is to say out of the top 10. So at that point, once you really, really give a shit, 
you can't do fee- shit you feel like doing. You got to do shit that you know is a good idea. And some of that's not egotistical. I mean, John's a, John's a fucking guy. Like he's a human male. He wants to fuck shit up in the gym. I want to throw dumbbells into the mirror, right? But like, maybe that's not a good idea at all times. And you got to do what's a good idea versus what you feel like doing, plain and simple. That's like a, yeah. probably the biggest rule of life you can ever come up with. Most definitely. Um, yeah, I think it, 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 there comes a point. And, and like you said, I think even just, well, even just um, maybe practicing that, you may get more Olympias in you because of that versus maybe someone who does do um, all out muscular failure, who doesn't maybe look at the evidence and things like that. We talk about maybe maybe they, they are able to get where they are by not using any evidence at all and then just going to the gym and throwing stuff around. But how long potentially would their career be um, if they just did how they felt and just went in the gym and haphazardly did things, I guess. That's a really good uh, idea. Um, hypotheticals are important. Uh, they are very limited, but they're important to illustrate principles. You know, people say like Ronnie won eight Olympias and he just ever only ever trained himself. Okay. Well, before he hired a sports nutritionist, Chad Nichols, he won zero Olympias and he credits every Olympia to Chad Nichols. Like literally he's like, they like, why did you become, he went from like ninth at the Olympia of the year in 1997 and then in 1998, he got first and never got anything less than the first until like 2005 or some crazy shit. And uh, they're like, what, what was the change? And he's like, I hired a nutritionist. That's it. So imagine if Ronnie hired like a, a super competent sports scientist or trainer to run his training. Maybe he would have stepped on stage in 2003, not at 287 pounds. Maybe he would have been 295 pounds in that same conditioning. Uh, maybe he would have won nine Olympias. Huh? instead yeah. of eight and would have been unequivocally the best of all time not best of all time with the caveat that it's tied with you know lee haney so people say like well what's his name does it can you imagine like so this is another like criticizing the nut riders thing people love to not ride um and they'll say like well it's good enough for jay cutler it's good enough for me it's good enough for ronnie it's good enough for me like right on would you say would you say that about steve reeves back in the day like can you imagine like we 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 teleport like young phil heath uh, and, or like we, we here's, here's crazy, a crazy, crazy thought experiment. You take Phil Heath and you put him into a, like an avatar body, like a, just a skinny dude, and you time machine him back to the 1950s and 60s or whatever when Steve Reeves and those guys trained. And he'd come up to the gym and be like, "Hey, why are you doing that?" And someone's like, "You fucking dare question Steve Reeves? He's fucking Mr. Olympia. Like he'll never look like this." Like what would Phil do? He would chuckle. He'd be like, <laughs> "Actually, if I showed you guys what I really look like, you guys would all retire immediately and just hide." Like. So careful that you're not writing current top guys doesn't end up being just religion. And you actually find out that in 20 years, those same top guys or their new replaced versions are saying the shit you used to say is stupid. You know what I mean? So times change and it's good to think for yourself versus just try to justify shit with being like, well, it's the best. Well, maybe the guys could be even better if they did more optimal shit. The best guys don't know everything. They don't. And the guys that will know everything or very close to it will look better than the best guys. You know, that's it. Yeah. So, I mean, do you think maybe, um, that I, I think you, you believe also too, that things are kind of moving in that direction. Do you think that maybe we'll see more of those people at a higher level, um, in the coming years? Um, maybe yeah, more people. So. Yeah. yeah. On average, it's going to trickle in. Things change, man. And things change drastically over long time periods. And we just don't have an appreciation for that sort of thing. Usually in the 1960s, the NFL, uh, football teams did not lift weights because they thought it was going to slow you down. <laughs> the average NFL alignment in the 1960s from what I was, uh, from what I'm aware of weighed 225 pounds. Think about that. Like 225 pounds. There are people in the NFL today, um, uh, running backs, linebackers, fullbacks that could play every single position better than everyone in the NFL 40 years ago. 
every single one. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Be like, what yeah. position should you play? Everything. Give me the ball. I don't even, I don't even pass the ball to anyone. Try maybe block for me, maybe don't. Can you imagine a 270 pound guy that runs like a like a like a four six forty? Just like who's going to stop that guy? Nobody. That this you know back in the 1960s, if you said, hey, I think football players could benefit from training with weights, people would be like, no, you idiot, that's going to slow you down. Like yeah. you're going you're gonna to question what the best guys do. It's scary for me to think what the best NFL players are going to be like in 2040. Holy fuck, they could be like uh, doing crazy shit and just be unreal athletes even more than today. <laughs> that happens with every other sport. I'll and, look like uh, Ronnie you know, Coleman. Exactly right. <laughs> like you know, there's still guys the NFL that are carrying some extra body fat maybe they'll carry more muscle and less fat and then holy fuck yeah. and then the same goes for bodybuilders like you know what used to be you know, Lee Haney in the late 1980s early 1990s was the standard bearer of size right just 10 years later in the late 1990s Lee Haney would have been like an average size to below average size for yeah. his height guy in the Olympia stage and you know now you got guys on the Olympia stage that have taken that Ronnie Coleman sized and there's guys reliably coming in with ridiculous conditioning at all sorts of sizes. Mm -hmm. And it just seems like, Oh my God, how, how is this possible? Like, you know, Phil Heath at his best, it's like, or, or we'll take Brandon Curry, the current Mr. Olympia. I mean, you know, what oxygen gym did to him, certainly evidence-based stuff they're doing over there yeah. with, with farm. Um, he's got the proportions of a nineties pro with like 30 pounds more muscle than the pros in the nineties. Oh, yeah what are you going to do about that? Like, you know, like all those guys look good on their own in pictures, but if you put Brandon Curry next to those guys on a stage, you'd be like, Oh my God, where did this man come from? I mean, and, and that's because Brandon Curry embraces new stuff um, and new stuff works. So it's always good to be keen uh, on, on figuring out what's evidence-based and what's best practice. Yeah. Brandon Curry is a great example of that too, because I think a lot of people wrote him off for a while and oh, yeah, he I started wrote him off as so who the hell is he? He started embracing this, the, the more evidence-based approach. I mean, he, he was referencing uh, Scott Stevenson in one of his uh, videos I saw. Sure. And I mean, yeah, he just came out of nowhere and won the Olympia. I mean, it's, it's crazy. I mean, not nowhere, but definitely. Out of Kuwait. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's, that's really cool. I mean, so then I guess maybe some of these people who aren't embracing that are just going to get left in the dust really. Um, sure. You know, so. Um, okay, so uh, another thing I wanted to ask uh, is about volume. Um, I see a lot of debates about this. Uh, sorry, my Siri just turned on. Hold on. I don't know why it keeps doing this. Everything looks good on my end. Um, so uh, there's, there's, there's definitely, it seems like, some camps. Like there's some people who train super low volume um, sets to uh, multiple sets to mu uh, muscular failure. Um, maybe even people who are training with high volumes with muscular, uh, a lot of sets of muscular failure. Um, I've had, I've had coaches in the past who were um, uh, probably pretty reputable, pretty well-known guys um, give me uh, like programs where I had 30 to 40 sets um, in, in a contest prep scenario. Uh, for myself, that was way too much. But um, I was just curious maybe if you could explain some of your vol volume landmarks uh, to some of my audience and um, maybe MRV and, and maybe why the volume might, might, might not be the most optimal. Sure. So like um... – there's a couple of what we turn the volume landmarks and everyone has them. They're just a little bit different for everybody. Everyone has um, maintenance volume, the amount of training you need to do on average to keep your muscle mass. Uh, it's just not that much training and there's some good research on it. Um, probably like if you train twice a week, then like two to two to four sets per muscle group per week is probably good enough to maintain or very close for any level of athlete. So if you have a, even a high level bodybuilder, does uh, four sets of full range of motion pull-ups or assisted pull-ups hard. And then later that week, he does four sets of barbell bent rows or machine rows hard. He's 
probably not going to lose any appreciable muscle mass indefinitely just doing that, right? Um, and people usually think like, well, you need way more to maintain. Like actually you need very little to maintain. You need much more to gain. So the next thing is how much volume can I train with to at least start gaining the minimum effective volume, like the least volume I can do to at least get some gains. And that tends to be higher. And in advanced athletes, the minimum effective volume is usually considerably higher than the maintenance volume. So remember we talked earlier about that like window of the deloading and like any more than you maintain, but less than you have to do that as maintenance volume and minimum effective volume is exactly what that is. Um, and it, the more advanced you become, the higher minimum effective volume comes because like you just have to do more and more and more to get the same adaptations you used to and, and maybe just any adaptations. And at some point your minimum effective volume gets so high that it's very close to what's called your maximum recoverable volume. That's the most volume you can do and consistently recover week to week, or rather recover for the next week of training. So imagine if like your body just won't grow from any less than 18 sets for back per week, and that you can't recover from any more than 20 sets weekly for back. Well, what is, how, what, what would you, what would happen to you if you did a 15 set per week program? you probably wouldn't grow, okay? Uh, what would happen to you if you did a 22 set per week program? You could do it for one week and then the next week would be total shit, you wouldn't grow and you would have to deload and that'd be super stupid. So for you, something between 18, 19 or 20 reps, or sorry, 20 sets per week is probably what would be something that results in growth. And for most people, their windows for volume are bigger than that. Um, but they're not infinitely sized. And knowing your own volume landmarks, specifically what your minimum effective volume is and maximum recoverable, and training somewhere between those two is a good idea. There's debate in the fitness community, especially right now, um, about should you uh, be walking from minimum effective volume all the way to maximum recoverable every mesocycle? Should you be maybe trying to shoot the middle? Uh, maybe you should start for one mesocycle at close to minimum effective and then slowly work up over mesos. That's less clear, but I don't think anyone's debating that all the gains in the world happen between your minimum effective volume and maximum recoverable. And the biggest pity in the world is people that don't know that those landmarks exist even intuitively, and who have no idea if the amount of volume they're doing is where that is in a spectrum, right? So some people say like, oh, I, I did really well with a low volume program. Well, that means it was above your minimum effective volume. But you have to ask yourself two questions. How far above was it? If it was pretty close to your maximum recoverable volume, you could actually be doing less volume on average and getting better gains. That would be incredible, right? Or it was just, just over your minimum effective volume. And if you did even more volume, you could grow that much more. Like, so just because you found an effective program doesn't mean you found the most effective program, but by being a little flexible and sort of in some way, whether it's week to week or mass cycle to mass cycle, working from lower volume ranges to higher volume ranges and seeing where the stimulus to fatigue ratio is the best for you, seeing where the best gains are, can allow you to learn your body. And this is different for each muscle group that you have. And it changes a little bit over time, but it can basically allow you to get really, really good workouts and get the most out of your training without just shooting in the dark. Like people, one of the, this isn't a stupid question. Uh, I'm going to say this as politely as I can, but people say like, what do you think of German volume training? Well, once you read anything about the volume landmarks, like, well, it's 10 by 10. Uh, they could be right between your minimum effective volume and maximum recovery volume, and then it would work well. Um, it could be above your maximum recovery volume and you just shit blood and stop. Uh, and it could be below, unlikely, but for some very hard gainers with very slow twitch muscles, it could be below their minimum effective volume, like they're very close to it. And then it would result in very poor gains or no gains at all. So much better than, than seeing a program like 5 by 5 10 by 10 
is to experiment in your own training and start at the very low end of training and slowly work up in volume over time, deloading every now and again and seeing how your responses are. And you'll notice sooner or later where your best responses are, where you have the best workouts, where your strength gains are the best and where you grow the most muscle. And then you'll understand where your volume landmarks are. And then all future training is super simple because somebody could, let's say you do know what your volume landmarks are. Let's say your minimum effective volume for back, if you do, let's say three sessions a week is uh, 10 sets per week and your maximum recoverable is 20. If someone's like, hey, do you wanna do this back workout with me? And the, the workout itself is 22 sets for back. What are you gonna say? You're like, no, that's no, because I'm not gonna recover from that. Like, how do you know? Because I know my body and I've practiced and I've experimented and every time I go to 18, 19, 20 sets, my body just shuts down on me and I can't make gains. And then maybe someone will say like, hey, back training, you know, it's only four sets per week of back, but it's ultra heavy. What do you think? You'd be like, I think that's not a good idea for me to do it. They'd be like, why? Because I've chronically tried to do less than 10 sets per week and it just doesn't need any hypertrophy that I can measure. And then once you know that about yourself, oh my God, you've unlocked sort of the riddle of volume. And yeah, there's particularities about how you cycle between your minimum effective volume and maximum recoverable. As long as you're getting somewhere between the two, you're doing a really great job. That's the biggest problem is uh, people a lot of times just don't even know their own volume landmarks at all. And they're struggling with body parts that they shouldn't be struggling with. Yeah. I, I think I was in that camp myself. Um, I didn't really know much about, I was trying to design my own programs prior to finding your work. And um, I didn't really know much about, I think that's probably how I found it. I can't remember exactly. Um, but I didn't know much about how to structure just the amount of sets to do per week. Cause so I've been told all, right? <laughs> all different things. And um, uh, one thing I wanted to ask based on that is, so you kind of answered it a little bit is that um, you'll find your MEV, MRV based on your data, right? Based on if you're keeping track of your lifts, right? There's, it's gonna tell you something there. There's something in the writing where you're gonna be getting stronger. Uh, obviously, maybe some physical appearance changes too if your goal is hypertrophy. Um, you're gonna get some of that data feedback and if you start declining, uh, you're probably, you could potentially be in your MRV if that, does that make sense? Is that kind yeah, of? Yeah, or below your MEV. But if it's like a really low volume and you're getting weaker, then it's below your maintenance volume. <laughs> so right. you basically have uh, a situation where you could do a certain average volume per mesocycle, right? So you can just, it doesn't have to be the same volume every week, but at the, the course of a mesocycle, the accumulation and the deload, there's going to be an average volume you do there. Like let's say you went from 12 sets all the way to 16 and then you deload, right? So your average is 14. Um, and you say with 14 sets, how is my strength progression after the deload of the mesocycle? Like mesocycle to mesocycle, am I making strength progression? And you can, either, probably the best training is the one that gets, gets you the best strength progression over multiple mesocycles. Like if you're gaining strength in the rep ranges you want, in the rep ranges you're training, five to 30 sets of five to 30 reps, the fastest strength gains there will probably correlate in the long term to the best uh, muscle growth because it's really just a symptom of muscle growth at that point. Your nervous system can only like help you so much with repetitions. At some point, it's just you got to get bigger, right? So if you look at your results and you say, okay, training six sets per week for back, um, I didn't really gain a whole lot of strength after two or three mesocycles of that. I probably got to do more. It's unlikely to be less, right? And that's where the normative literature comes out, like literature of direct scientific studies on people who were told to do a certain number of sets and then they measured growth and one group did more, one group did less. So we have an inkling from science and from just common experience and practice of what's realistic. Cause some people say like, what if my minimum effective volume is like one set per week? It's like, well, you know, how many people out there are doing one set per week? Like well, almost nobody. Okay. So it's probably not that. How many research studies found that one set was better than three sets or five sets or whatever? I'm like, well, none. Okay. So it's probably more than that. Right. So we know your minimum effective volume is probably more than like four or five sets a week. 
and it's probably, you know, it's unlikely to be like 20, it's somewhere between those two. So you start kind of at the lower end and see how your results are, and then just play with experimenting with, with try to do a little bit more volume and see where you get your best gains. And over time, you sort of learn that. And the cool thing is about maximum recovery volume, as long as you're making your training harder over time, it'll come to meet you. You don't have to come to meet it. Make you whatever amount of training you do, uh, eventually it'll be too much volume to recover from because the accumulated fatigue plus the volume itself is going to be too much. Once you're no longer recovering, then you need to deload. And you look at that number of sets that you were doing before you need to recover. And for that length of metal cycle, for that particular style of training, that was your maximum recoverable volume. Here's an example. Let's say you're training with 12 sets of back per week. Things going well. You go up to 14. Everything's going fine. You go up to 16. You start to get pretty tired. You go up to 18. You can barely maintain your performance. You go to 20 and your performance actually declines. Is it possible there was a chance just you just had a shitty week in the last week and you could have kept elevating your performance? There was. So you sort of repeat that mesocycle. You go again from, you know, 12 to 14, 16, blah, 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 get to 20. And again, like at 19 sets, your performance shits the bed. And then another mesocycle later, at 21 sets, your performance shits the bed. Are you really going to bet that there's some magical way you could figure out to train that's going to let you do like 20, 20 sets plus? Probably not. Not with that scheme. So now you know your maximum recovery volume and at least know that you get decent gains above 10. And somewhere in there is, you know, some of your best gains. And then you probably shouldn't be training chronically with any more than 20 sets. My approach and the approach we take at Renaissance is you should probably just start most mesocycles close to that lower value, minimum effective, and slowly within the mesocycle as your body adapts to more and more training, increase the amount of volume you're doing by adding a few sets here and there in an auto-regulated fashion, and then end up at your MRV and deal it or repeat. But you can absolutely choose another way where you just smash, like go right into 15 sets, you know, right between 10 and 20 as an example, and do 15, 15, 15. And when you get tired uh, or basically you can't do any more high performance, uh, you can't beat your performance or match it, the, then you've hit your MRV, which is now 15, but just a longer mesocycle. It took you longer to accumulate. And then you deload. And then maybe you can play around with trying 17 and seeing if that's a better result. Uh, but in any case, you know, you don't want to train with like 35 sets and you don't want to train with like three sets because you know that both of those are probably wrong. It's a range is basically what you're saying. It's not going to be just like uh, maybe when you're in a calorie deficit, it's, it's not a, it's not a hard 200 calorie deficit that caused that caused you to lose weight. It's, it's sometimes this range, right? It's not. Uh, and I think, totally. I think that's, that's in, important is that there's no objective way yet of determining this. So we have to be really in tune with ourselves um, which I think, like we were talking about earlier, I think that sometimes bodybuilders just tend to just work through it. You know, this is, oh, my knees are supposed to hurt and I'm supposed to feel, feel like, you know, this chronic fatigue. And I, I've been in that position too before where I'm like, I just need to keep working, training seven days a week and doing multiple, multiple sets of failure. And, and I think that it's important. You need to be really in tune with yourself to be able to identify, um, you know, when you're at your MRV, right? Totally. Um, what, what are some other like physical signs before we get off that, that, that topic, like, uh, that, that maybe you're at your MRV just so you know, uh, for certain, maybe because there's other things that could be at play, like maybe you're tired one day or something, but yeah. So the ultimate sign is performance. You're unable to beat your, uh, match or beat your rep strength from earlier. Like okay. say you bench 200 pounds for 15 reps last week, this week you bench 200 pounds for, for 14 and tries, you might, you can't get the 15th. Eh, technically you might be over your maximum recovery volume. It might be for whatever reason, but that's why you can't just estimate it once. You have to go to decrease volume, deload, and then ramp back up and see if that same thing happens um, when you reach too much volume. Uh, but uh, there are some other things that should occur alongside that 
Um, you know, your muscles should kind of feel like jelly. You can start getting into overlapping soreness where you never heal from like, say you train chest Monday, Thursday, by the time next Thursday comes up and you're doing like 18 sets of chest a week, you're still sore. Like, okay, well, I'm probably not going to perform at my highest because I'm super, super damaged. Um, if you're taking your whole body from MVV to MRV towards the MRV, you're going to feel much less motivation to train, much more fatigued. You can even get sleep disturbances. Your appetite can decline. And uh, all of those things can be a part of normal training um, as long as your performance is still stable or going up. Once your performance starts to decline, especially two workouts in a row for a muscle group, it's time to deload. And you've probably hit your MRV. And a couple mesocycles later, you'll be able to determine, okay, this is what my MRV really is. It seems like reliably when I get to 20 sets, I start to fall apart and I can't perform anymore. So then maybe going any program that designs an accession of 20 sets is stupid. At the very least, you can you just take that away from it. Cool. Yeah. Um, man, I'm, I'm holding back on a lot of things here because I've had coaches prescribe a lot of this stuff. Um, oh, yeah. Same here. Yeah. And I like, I, I honestly are, are kind of like where we came, where we came from as far as training a lot of that same stuff, just taking a lot of sets to muscular failure just go and, as hard as possible. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's funny. Um, okay. Well, uh, to get off that topic, um, uh, that's really good because I think sometimes I don't pay attention to those things, like I said, and then I think a lot of people don't. So I, I just want to have some outlined things to look for uh, because I, I just more, more started embracing a lot of like RPs stuff. Um, in your volume landmarks um, within like the last six months to a year or so. Oh, cool. And, and I'm starting to like get a more of a feel for a lot of these things. Um, I, I actually bought a couple of your products and eventually want to work with, with, um, you know, some of you guys, but um, yeah, that's, that's good to, to know what to look out for in the, in that, in that area. Sure. Um, okay. So um, importance, uh, I have, I have all my questions written here, but uh, what is the uh, importance of uh, full range of motion training and standardizing form um, Again, this is from observation. I, I have a, a big bias of, of, of this, but um, you know, seeing bodybuilders do the half rep push-ups or half rep pull-ups, uh, bench press that you only come a little bit off your chest. W one thing I want to say before I just my observation is I think that maybe the reason, obviously, a lot of these guys are genetically elite, but maybe the reason why they're growing is because maybe they're creating a full range of motion throughout multiple movements, um, when, what they may, may call angles sometimes, different angles. But I see them doing a pull up here, and then they're doing a pull down to here. And I'm like, okay, well maybe they could just be doing the pull up with a full range and they could do much less volume, get much better results. Uh, what do you think of that? Uh, that's kind of just my theory around it. Oh, I think that's, that's very wise. I think that's definitely true. Um, I will say that uh, getting growth isn't terribly difficult, especially if you have good genetics and you're taking the right farm. The question is how sustainable is that growth? And is it the most growth you could be getting? So guys will step on stage at 235 pounds and compete at the top level for two years before injuries and not placing any higher get them to quit. If you do full range of motion, you both grow a little bit more muscle objectively, but also your injury risk is much, much less because you're using much less absolute load. Um, and maybe then you'll compete and be 240 pounds on stage instead of 235, but you'll be able to compete for four years instead of two. And at the peak of that four-year competition, you might be able to win a pro show instead of be taking third. Because a lot of guys look at pros and they think, man, this guy's, look at him, he's a pro, he's doing everything right. That guy doesn't look at himself like that. He looks at like Phil Heath and Sean Roden and Brandon Curry and think those guys are doing everything right. I'm a piece of shit. So if you can catch that guy and be like, do you want two more years to your competitive life? And do you want... Uh, you know, to be a little bit more muscular and less likely to get hurt, they're going to be like, uh, yeah, sure. We're like, well, train like this. 
right? But a lot of them never hear that from anyone. And we're all, look, we're all fundamentally, there's, I think it's pretty easy to explain why people mostly do partial range of motion. That's because they're male and they're full of testosterone, often 10 to 50 times as much as normal. And uh, you know what I'm saying? You want to handle them big ass weights, man. And, and, like people try to explain why bodybuilders train with partial range of motion. They never try to explain why almost every other gym rat and gym bro and just regular guy trains with a partial range of motion. Like if it was really a secret of the pros, why the hell is everyone else doing it? Why do high school students default to training like that when they know nothing? Because they're just egotistical and most bodybuilders, their ego doesn't leave. And if they don't know any better from a technical perspective or a literature perspective, why the heck are they ever change? You know, like yeah. uh, a lot of the reason to be bodybuilded at all is because of ego. So I'm not going to take eight plates off the leg press, put the eight plates on there. I want to do half reps. They don't think of them as half reps. They think I'm like, well, you can always rationalize stuff. I'm like, well, I'm challenging my musculotendinous unit with more load. Yeah, that's it. You know, like, it's right on. Uh, if you don't read the literature, you don't know the full range of motion is better. The way I got into full range of motion was actually not reading the literature at all. It was the perception of the fact that I got way better stretch, way better contraction, way better mind-muscle connection, and a better pump for how much weight I didn't have to use when I was training with full range of motion. And I was like, holy fuck, but this just feels great. And then I realized like, it's so easy to standardize in this program, program you're training and progress in it. Like if I bench all the way to my chest and all the way up to lockout every time, I know exactly how strong you get, how fast. There's no question if, if I'm having an effect, but if you just, if your bench press ideas is just do this bullshit. People say shit like, first time touching four or five in, in a, this cycle, like pretty good. Like, what do you mean touching? Like for how many reps? How much total work did you do? What was the distance? Like, how do you know you got better? You know, like you, you might have just like shortened the range of motion subconsciously yeah. and then more weight and you're no bigger. And the, you're no bigger part. Like let's say you don't grow for a year and you've just been lying to yourself. Whatever you thought was working isn't. You should have been changing shit. Like if you clearly show body, be like, you're not growing. And over the past four weeks, you haven't grown. We'd be like, what do I change to grow? But if you lie to yourself by never standardizing your reps and your technique, then you can get away from the idea that you're, whether or not you're growing, uh, you could essentially insulate yourself from it. And that's, that's, I don't want to be insulated from that, man. I want to know. And it's humbling and it's annoying and I can't use as much weight as everyone else in the gym, but I'll take it. And then look, when you can use a ton of weight with full range of motion, you'll be a real baller because then people really get confused seeing you because they look at, they watch you unload the squat and you walk back with four plates and they're like, all right, this is pretty strong. And then you go all the way down and pause and come back up. They're like, fuck. I've had people come up to me um, and uh, I, had a, I had a black dude come up to me once in a gym many times with one, one guy specifically. Uh, something about like, black guys will just give it to you more straight than everyone else. He just looks at me. He goes, I guess after I did like 315, for, this is way back in the day, I did like 315 for a set of 12. Like I sunk it every single time. He comes up to me. He's way bigger than me. He goes, you a bad dude. You a bad dude. That's all he said and walked away. I was like, that's the greatest compliment I'm going to ever see from anyone. But it was like, you know, if I had walked out with four or five and done half reps, he might've been like, eh, there's like 10 other guys at the gym that do that sort of thing. So it's worth it. But it's a nasty ego. Yeah. It's a nasty ego bite, especially at first, especially because he's just the thing. Like I get to be on my high horse. Like I'm pretty jacked. I'm pretty strong. So even for full range of motion shit, like it's like pretty impressive to most people. But like it sucks when you're an evidence-based fucking twig and you weigh 140 pounds and you're like, well, you know, like Dylan and Dr. Mike said to do full ROM and you're using your 40s for bench and the guys next to you using 70s with a partial range and they're about the same size. I'm like, am I doing something wrong? Like they're already, they're already graduated the big boy weights and I'm this idiot that believes in a full range of motion. All I'm saying is don't give up and eventually you'll be doing the 70s with full ROM. You'll be bigger than those guys and less hurt. Yeah, I mean, I think the uh, the the you you kind of have to uh, step away from a lot of what people are doing in the gym um, when you try to embrace some of this stuff. I mean, if you look around and that's how you're formulating how effective your workout is, I think that 
you you might be doing the wrong thing, right? <laughs> That's I think. a great point. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I mean, I've been in that boat too. I, I just recently standardized my squat form. I got a wedge just so I can get, I feel a little more comfortable getting more depth. I made a wedge actually. And, um, you know, I was squat. I think the best I did was 455 for like 20 reps one time. And, uh, but you know, exactly. And, and then, and now I'm doing, I think I did like 185, um, you know, all full depth with a little pause at the bottom and I can barely get like 10. And I mean, that's a really, you know, if I, if I let it, it could be a huge kick in my ego. Like, sure. How do you your know, I feel though? Oh, they're, they're burning. They're burning. Before I would feel it in my back and I'd be like so gassed, but I just couldn't tell you if I just trained legs or not. Like I just, you know, and, and my back would get injured half the time. Uh, I, I thought it was squats. I was like, oh, it's squats. They're, they're People causing say that all the time. They're right. Don't you yeah. read Instagram and the magazines and bodybuilders will say like, yeah, squats aren't good for me. Like, what do you mean by squats? And you see them no, squat, they're like, oh, awesome. that's bad for everyone. <laughs> Don't yeah, do exactly. that. That's not a squat. Yeah. <laughs> no, squats are, are awesome if you do them right. But the thing is, I didn't have a standardized form. So I was going a quarter of the way down one day and then, you know, halfway or, or I was shorting range over, over time and just loading my spine. Like I was just loading my back and getting nothing effective done. You so, just described my first eight years of training legs. <laughs> I mean, what I'm, I'm 10 years deep and this is, uh, this is, uh, like six months in. So there you go. Same, same timeline. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is someone training for five years? Like, yep. Yeah, in three years, you're going to start to train legs properly. Oh my gosh. I mean, that's, this is really uh, a marathon when you look at it. Cause I'm like, man, I probably had like, a year or two may, maybe of like effective, really good training under my belt now, like uh, over my whole 10 year span. For sure. Uh, cool. Uh, well, um, let's see how much time we have left. Cool. I'm gonna get you out of here. Uh, just a couple like quick uh, sure. fire off questions. Um, I wanted to ask you a little about nutrition. So I noticed that uh, you and Charlie did a cut recently. I was just curious. Um, you guys ate a lot of like, or I don't know, Charlie did they ate a, like a lot of the, the, uh, the locale toast. Uh, this is no way in lo no way a loaded question. I'm just curious, um, uh, in a deficit, what is your regard for micronutrition and how are you able to get that in? Like, obviously I know you're just posting the toast, so I don't see what else you're eating per se. So I just kind of want to know, um, what is the regard? What are like the, the RDAs? Are you tr trying to hit those? Is there a conscious effort towards that? I mean, I'm sure there is, but yeah, totally. There's conscious effort on, the, on two fronts. One is we uh, take multivitamins and multiminerals every day. Um, I did take a couple of things that the human body usually lacks in hard training athletes like vitamin D and zinc and all this other kind of stuff, especially for enhanced people. Um, and then in addition to that, we just eat mostly healthy foods that are well-rounded. So lots of lean meats and um, a lot, yeah, healthy fats and lots of grains and tons of veggies. I eat tons of veggies every day when I'm dieting and some fruit as well um, and dairy. So that's really like just a really healthy diet, just less shit. Um, so Charlie absolutely eats the uh, the low cal toast, but hilariously, it has a lot of fiber in it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, that's just a part of what he eats. And a lot of the other stuff he eats is just most like he'll eat a ton of rice and um, uh, cauliflower and uh, all these other veggies and tons of meats. So micronutrition is, is definitely a factor. And we don't eat like these, you know, oh, it's a great, great question because a lot of pros, well, like they don't even eat veggies, dude. They just have like white, like here's my meal, white rice steak, white rice steak, white rice steak, fish, white rice. And you're like, where do you get most of your vitamins and minerals? Who knows, right? Uh, and again, micronutrition, in my view, for elite performance athletes in the medium term months is overrated. Um, your body's very, very good at getting all the nutrients it needs. If you just eat meat and a couple of basic grains, you get most of everything you need in the short or medium term. But the long term really does behoove you to, to vary your uh, intake and eat plenty of fruits and veggies. And I think at least eating a varied source of veggies uh, during prep is a good idea. Like if someone's going to tell me that eating some broccoli slaw 
the same grams of carbs as you know, like broccoli slaw with white rice is somehow way worse for you as a competitive bodybuilder than eating just white rice and no broccoli slaw. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, yeah. that's just wrong. It's got to be wrong. And it's almost certainly wrong. And a lot of times people eat these meals just out of convenience. And, and lastly, a lot of bodybuilders, when they prep, and this is something I'm glad we can talk about the enhanced stuff a little bit. A lot of the modern preps are, it's difficult to describe this in words. They're what I would call full push preps where you say like, are you losing fat or gaining muscle right now? Like I'm doing both. Prep is just when you take like an in, in, inordinate amount of gear and see if you survive. So a lot of the guys are on so much shit, they don't even have appetites anymore. And they're on so much slim that they have to push unbelievable amounts of food. Once you have to eat a certain amount of carbohydrate, you're not putting any fucking veggies in your rice because you just throw up after a certain point. That a lot of those guys <clears> just eat white rice and white potatoes because the only thing that goes down uh, yep. is just as little fiber as possible. They would just shit blood if they had broccoli with every meal. <laughs> so uh, a lot of people don't know that. So they'll, in the evidence-based community, or not evidence-based people that aren't jacked and are on a ton of drugs, they'll try to like replicate that. They'll eat just white rice or just potatoes and a little bit of steak and chicken. I'll be like, I'm so hungry and I'm like lacking micronutrients. Well, don't do that shit. Save that shit for when you weigh 280 and you're dieting to 265 dieting, which just means you take more trend every week and you're not dead. So you show up on stage uh, and then maybe then you'll have fewer veggies in your diet. So it's a yeah. lot of stuff that's unsaid that you look at Instagram posts, you're like, they don't eat veggies. Like they would if they you know could and sometimes they just right. can't. Right. And I, I just wanted to address that because it's easy to see. I mean, you see these people who post up their, their cheat meals and it's like, and they're like, how, you know, someone's like super lean and, and they're all the time. And they're like, how do they stay so lean when all I see them eating is in an out burger? And it's like, yes. well, well, you know, that's one of the, the, the 50 meals they eat this whole week. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's not the whole picture. So have you had a in and out burger uh, since you've been in Vegas? By the way? Uh, no. And it's not a priority, but I've been to California uh, about 600,000 times. Oh, there you go. And I've had in and out a bunch. I saw what I say. Uh, in and out is good, but I'm not on the in and out train of like it's the greatest thing ever. Uh, oh, really? I know, I know, I know that offends people. Uh, and I'm, I'm in and out guy, so. I'm ready to be controversial. We're now officially what's, enemies. What's the better? Uh, as far as burgers, um, I, I mean, you know, I have. In and out's a fine burger. Um, you know, it's funny. You caught me off guard. I don't have like a tally of burger places that I think are amazing. Even though I like burgers, I think I'll say really something really fucked up. I think you can get a fine burger almost anywhere. I know that's a math. That's basically like I just became an apostate to burger lovers everywhere. But and I'm probably wrong. But to me, I'm just not into burgers much. Like if you ask me, like, where do you get the best burrito? I have an, an intense, intense list of replies to that, which is really, really specific. So specifically to the burgers i mean i i think bodybuilding has made me like i don't know my palate isn't super like complex i just right I can get a burger and i'm just like good anything uh, with flavor is better than the shit yeah. you usually eat yeah. <laughs> no but um okay uh, one if you're ever in venezuela I, I lived there for a little bit uh 26 beach restaurant has really good burgers so if you're ever in that area that's, that's a really good, good place i did go to gold's gym a few times and i ate at the firehouse and that was actually really good firehouse like it's good, amazing yeah. that it's so like it's not like the best tasting food but the macros relative to the taste are like yeah. holy shit it's totally really... totally bodybuilder friendly it's yeah, awesome yeah you just get like a super big clean meal it's it's awesome when i awesome. when i lived there that was just awesome just you know train and then go down to firehouse i mean that was the, that's you the were living life young arnold yeah i know <laughs> um but uh, the 26 has a peanut butter jelly and bacon burger, which was really good. Dude, so. get the fuck out of here. Oh, what? Hipster yeah. shit. Not <laughs> supposed really to mix good. that stuff, goddammit. You're not there even was... American. <laughs> All right. Um, 
uh, off that topic, uh, just one more thing before I get you out of here, man. Um, how do we bring more attention to the evidence-based approach? And I wrote here, do we yell more? Gotta yell, must yell, specifically at older people and children that you don't yeah. know, because uh, they respond really well to the yelling. Um, yes. So I think the ultimate best way to do it um, is to preach the good word, practice what you preach, become great, as great as you can be, and coach as many people very well with kindness, with patience, and with effectiveness so that you end up being someone who contributes something to the community of, oh yeah, like Dylan, I heard that guy. Man, some of the athletes ripped as fuck. I gotta read what he's saying. Like you want people to say shit like that about you versus like being a really polarizing figure because then you'll make as many enemies as friends and a lot of people will just like be really, really resistant to listening to what you have to say. At the end of the day, the evidence-based approach to training will eventually take over the enhanced side of the industry when the vast majority of people that are enhanced are evidence-based, uh, plain and simple. So as an evidence-based community in the enhanced world, we just have to get more lean and more jacked than everyone or coach athletes that do. Um, you know, every time John Jewett uh, goes up a placing at the Olympia or his pro shows, it's an improvement for evidence-based folks. Every time John Meadows uh, does better and better when he used to compete or when his athletes do better and better, it's more evidence-based stuff. Um, Shelby Starnes, I don't know if you remember him, but he coaches pretty much all the top women now, and he gets them lean Some to the crazy athletes. Just doesn't make any sense. You're like, yeah. wow, what are you doing? Oh, yes. How are you not dead? Where is your body fat? Oh, um, for for women, the, the shredded quads is just it and glutes and everything. And some of these women get leaner than everyone. Like oh men, God. women, it's just to the Never point where it doesn't make any sense. It's insane. Yeah. But like Shelby is very evidence based and very calm, very rational, yes. and that kind of thing. Like. It, you know, there's coaches still in the pro ranks in, in the male community, which are like, kind of just like feed people all the gear in the world and see who doesn't die. But in the female community, it's getting to be a more rare thing. Cause if you're one of the top girls, you probably work with Shelby and he probably does the right thing. And he sort of leads by example too, where if you want to coach the best females, if you, if some client maybe doesn't have time or money to work with Shelby or she hasn't yet worked with him, she knows he's the big deal. She's going to be like looking at coaches' plans and remembering what Shelby wrote for her. If it's way too far off the mark, she's going to be like, why do you do this? And they're like, well, you got to fucking do it, brother. And she'll be like, nah, Shelby gave me a way better explanation. And then so basically it's one of those, like if you're not oh. like what's the best, then you're out. And guys and girls who coach catch on to that real quick. And they're going to be like, well, what does Shelby know? And they're like, oh, evidence shit, science and all this pharmacology crap. I got to learn that too. And then eventually 20 years later, everyone kind of knows the basics. You know, it's funny. Back in the 60s and stuff, nobody knew myofibers were. They didn't know concentric, eccentric. Now you talk to the average pro bodybuilder, he knows what that shit is. He might not be applying it 100% correctly, but he knows like an eccentric phase. You know, most pros in the 1980s, what the fuck is an eccentric phase? Now they know, right? So again, we don't appreciate things that happen over long terms of improvement. 20 years from now, you know, everyone's going to know macros. Everyone's going to know this and that. And not everyone, most people. And then that will be the standard. So just raise the standard by being a better coach, better athlete, better human being. And eventually, if evidence actually works better, you and your athletes should be beating everybody. I mean, I think that's great. I think that's... I, I don't know if I knew exactly, but I think this that's really why um, I started this podcast because I want to create a dialogue with people like you. Um, I want I want more of this to be out in the in the in the sphere and I and I 
I don't know. I kind of want that to be, I want to be a part of that, that sure. I guess. And so, I mean, obviously like I haven't um, myself haven't achieved much in the competitive aspect. I, that, that is my Neither. aspiration. <laughs> yeah. That's my aspiration. So, and, and, and if I can just, like you said, lead by example, be a part of that voice, that is really important to me too. And I think that's, that's, sure. that's great. I think. And don't forget how much you can change by coaching. You know, Matt Jansen is one of the top pro co- prep coaches now, and he's, he's quite evidence-based and he, like, how much has he done in bodybuilding? I don't know. Like he's not pro. He's done pretty well at nationals, but not, not a top guy. Yeah. Like he's not known for his physique. None of the guys that works with Matt Jansen ever looks at him as like, this is a guy I got to work with. Like he looks great. He's super jacked by pro standards. He's a regular guy, probably below par, which is why he's not pro. Same here. Right. Um, how come people work with Matt? Cause he fucking gets other people in shape, man. Yeah. And he's gotten like 10 athletes to the Olympia. And all of a sudden it's like, Hey, who'd you work with Matt Jansen? Like, Maybe I should wear that guy too. So even if you never yourself become the most jacked human on the planet, you help other people along the way. Uh, you know, first you work with local competitors. They get into great shape. They say good things. They talk to other people at the regional level and those guys come to you. Then now you're dealing with a genetic stock that's better. And eventually you got two or three guys to turn pro. Once you get one guy to turn pro, you got sort of income for life as a trainer and coach because everyone wants to be that guy. And then once you do really well and attract other pros and stuff, all of a sudden the, the influence grows. The only thing you got to do is do a good job, be personable, and actually have strategies that are effective. Uh, and that's where evidence-based is really handy because the shit works. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. It's already a solved problem. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't know, man. It, that's that's probably the the most map. I, it seems like you understand it really well, and and I I never was able to really put that together, but that makes a ton of sense. And I think uh, uh, it's great that you are contributing to that. And um, yeah, like I said, I'm just trying to do my part in that uh, in that realm because I really think it's really important to get this information out to people. So we're all just leaves in the wind until the technological singularity comes and the robots take over. So just try and do our best until then. <laughs> Uh, well, I think that's a great thing to end on that piece of advice. Uh, again, thank you so much for coming on today, uh, Dr. Mike. Uh, where can My people pleasure. reach you uh, as far as? Sure. So we got put a lot of YouTube content out now, Renaissance Periodization YouTube, or just type in Dr. Mike Israel on YouTube. And we put out like multiple videos every week, science of training, science of dieting, all that stuff, tons of hypertrophy stuff. So that's how to, that's uh, where to find me. Uh, and Instagram at RPDRMIKE. And RP Strength on Instagram at RP Strength. Um, um, learn and uh, hopefully do less dumb shit and do more smart shit. And, and I just want to say one thing on that um, RP Plus. I, I am subscribed to it and it is awesome. I am someone who uh, didn't choose a more formal education um, because of maybe some of the personal disbeliefs I have with with the way it's set up and then it doesn't work yeah, with me. But a club. <laughs> but but that 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 platform is so amazing with all the lectures that you have on there you have the slides up next to you the way you explain everything it, it's just so digestible for me i think that's one of the main things that was so hard for me about school um i'm an audiovisual learner and being able to have the notes being able to pause the video take notes on it, it it's just been so tremendous uh, Thanks, for myself man. yeah so, rp plus thank is you. like yeah my, my our pleasure rp plus is basically a resource where there's hundreds and hundreds of lecture videos each one like there's multiple courses in rp plus yeah. of sports science and it's like uh currently it's free uh thanks covid uh but it's like <laughs> usually 10 bucks a month or something so it's the cheapest yep. education you'll ever receive if you really want to dive into the stuff at a super deep level rp plus is the place to look i i agree completely um oh and you didn't mention um do you have a site for your used posing trunks that you sell them by any chance 
have a couple OnlyFans sites depending on how I look because I have a big beer mode and a chiseled mode. Oh, um, nice. And I have used posing charts. To be honest, I just wipe my ass with them and send them off because how many posing charts could I possibly have? They're not all used. They have my fluids on them, but it's not like I posed in them. <laughs> oh, good. Okay. Most yeah. people just don't care about that when they want you to use trunks. As long as they smell like you, that's all That's all that matters. <laughs> cool. Well, I'm glad uh, people will be able to get, get to you for those as well. <laughs> Thanks again, Dr. Mike. Uh, I'll hopefully talk to you soon, man. Super. Thanks for having me. See ya.